Welcome to Check the Pantry, coming to you from the KBBI studios in beautiful downtown Homer, Alaska. Each week, we pick a different ingredient and say anything we can think of to say about that ingredient. Today, we're talking about pork shoulder. My name is Jeff Lockwood. My guest for this show is John Brown, head chef at AJ's Steakhouse, and it's time to check the pantry. you're a meat eater, there's one piece of meat you need to know how to use. It's cheap, it's delicious, and it's incredibly versatile. It's the pork shoulder. There's a lot you can do with a pork shoulder, but I want to talk about the best thing you can do with a pork shoulder, fresh sausage. So you get yourself a pork shoulder, a box of salt, and whatever flavorings you like in your sausage. Nothing but black pepper can be surprisingly delicious. Garlic and lots of it is classic, allspice, ginger, fresh herbs, maple syrup, chili peppers, anything you like. You need a grinder of some sort. A stuffer is optional. You really should have a digital scale. Once you get used to it, you'll use it for all kinds of things in the kitchen, but for sausage making like for baking, the scale is an essential piece of equipment. Sausage is simple. It's about two parts lean meat to one part unrendered fat with one and a half to 2% salt by weight and spices in the range of one to 3%. I take a pork shoulder and start by trimming all the fat cap the thick layer that would lie just under the skin and putting that in one bowl. Then I start cutting the muscle. Long strips are better than chunks because they pass through the worm of the grinder more easily. Big sections of fat I throw in with the fat cap, the mostly lean meat I put into another bowl. Stringy connective tissue goes with the bones to make pork stock. Then you weigh the lean and weigh the fat. Weigh it in grams, your sanity will thank me. Now ideally a pork shoulder comes out to between 66 and 70% lean and 33 to 30% fat, but in the world we live in, where pigs are bred lean and fat caps are trimmed close, the ratio is closer to 80% lean to 20% fat. You can still make a high quality sausage at 80-20, but if you want to make the best, take out some of that lean meat until the ratio is more in the 2 to 1 range and throw it into a pot of beans or something. Add the weights of your lean and fat, multiply by 1.5% or by 2% if you like a little more salt. Weigh out that much salt, mix it into your lean meat, put it all in the fridge overnight. Put your grinder parts into the freezer when you do this. The reason has to do with the characteristics of pork fat. The precise temperature at which fats begin to melt is of considerable culinary importance. Have you ever noticed a chalky feeling after you eat prepackaged gas station pastries that are made with cheap vegetable shortening, like there's a film covering the roof of your mouth? But then when you eat a croissant from a good bakery that's made with butter, it feels like the solid dough is slowly melting across your palate. It's because butter melts below body temperature and cheap vegetable shortening melts above it. The shortening coats your mouth, the butter disappears into it. Now, pork fat's like butter, but if you allow the fat to melt while you're making the sausage, it'll just leak out while you're cooking it, instead of staying in the sausage and contributing to that plush texture. If you've ever had a lump of dry meat inside a puddle of grease, that's what happened. So keep things cold. The important thing to remember during the grind is that slow is fast. You don't want to have to use the pusher. You don't want to just smush a bunch of chunks in the throat and mash on them. You want to drop one strip at a time and let that one go almost all the way through before you add the next one. It'll be faster and most importantly, cooler. Dump whatever spices you've chosen into your grind and start to knead with your hands. You'll feel the mixture get sticky in your fingers and you'll keep kneading until you can pick your hand up, open palm down with a nice sized lump of meat stuck to the underside and hold it there. It shouldn't fall back into the bowl. Now you've got sausage. Break a little chunk off, fry it up, taste it, tweak the seasonings until you're happy with what you've got. You can leave it uncased if you don't have a piston stuffer. Avoid the attachments that fit on a grinder. Those are more trouble than they're worth. If you do have access to a stuffer, though, get some natural casings 
32 to 35 millimeter hog middles are a good size to start. With stuffing, like with grinding, go slow. You want to avoid getting air bubbles in your links, and you want to avoid tearing the casing. Make links by twisting first towards yourself, then away, and you're done. It's cheap, it's simple, and you can make it exactly how you like it. Better than you can get it pretty much any store, at least in Alaska. That's right. Today is Pork Shoulder Day here on Check the Pantry. My name is Jeff Lockwood. I am joined today by Mr. John Brown, head chef at AJ's Steakhouse. Good morning, John. Good morning. It is good to have you here. This man is an expert in meat, and that's why he's here with us. So let's talk a little bit about that that first thing, sausage. I am a bit of a sausage dweeb, as you may or may not be aware of. And I first got into making sausage because it's so hard to find the good stuff here in Alaska. I know, John, you're from Georgia originally, right? Well, Florida, but... but Florida, pretty close. And, you know, the, the fresh sausage scene in the South is a little different than, uh, than it is up here. So you, you, at AJ's, you guys grind all your own beef. And the, the whole grinding process is pretty similar between sausage and, and ground beef. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what you're thinking about while you're grinding your beef well you know i try to uh keep the integrity of the meat you know uh definitely want to keep everything really cold keep the parts of the grinder cold i tend to uh i, I just really actually learned something from you know about the sausage because for me i cut it into smaller chunks uh-huh. when i'm running the beef through because it comes it comes through easier uh, yeah if i try to rush it uh to start turn it kind of stringy yeah it gets you know mushy I mean? if, you're, if you rush a pate it kind of right and that's happening. and that's the and, and it's the same thing with ground beef as it is in in sausage like you want you want to keep that fat cold right you know you want to keep your fat in the meat and uh and and i've seen so many people you know when they when they grind their beef they just start mushing it in the in the in the throat and then they take their big pusher and they start smashing it down and they just get this this like gushy mush it, and then and then you go and you try to make even even sausage patties or ground beef patties like for a hamburger you try to make it and then you cook it and then what happens it just like oozes yeah. it just oozes falls grease. apart on you it's terrible you know I just hate to see it because if you're gonna if you're gonna spend the time to to make it yourself like take the take the care to keep everything cold and take your time you know let the grinder do the work you know I try that, to use the plunger as little as possible you know drop in little pieces and watch it come through and uh, you know you can see it comes through really nice and. Uh, yeah, it'll come out in, in like almost like like little little pieces of meat yarn coming right. out of <laughs> coming out right. of the a set of strings or yeah, or just that paste, you know. Like sometimes you just look at it and you're just like this mushy sort of gray ooze that's squirting out. That's bad. It's not getting cut, you know. It's getting smashed instead. I think exactly. Know? And you have to stop and take the whole thing apart and start over again. I know it's way it's 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 one of those deals where it's a lot faster if you take your time. Yeah. <laughs> And actually, cooking sausage is exactly the same way because I don't know why people make this assumption, but I've seen so many. I've seen it happen with so many people, including people that I really thought knew better. Is they'll take a sausage, you know, a fresh sausage, it's uncooked, and you know, like a bratwurst or something, and they'll get their grill hot, and they throw this piece of sausage right on the grill. And then it bursts. I, th- I think maybe that comes from cooking hot dogs, you know, or something. They think yeah, like the same a, thing. You know, yeah, that, that's actually a good point because, you know, a hot dog is already cooked. Right. And a lot of hot dogs don't even have casings, you know. And they're not only are they cooked, but they're emulsified. So the fat in them is real stable. But if you take a bratwurst and you plop that thing on the grill, then all of a sudden, like, you've got this super, super delicate, thin, thin membrane that, that's the only thing that's keeping all that nice, juicy goodness inside. And if you throw that on a hot pan, then it just explodes. It's too fast. And then, you know, grease falls everywhere. Your, your sausage dries out. Or what will happen is that maybe you, get, maybe you just managed to get a nice browning on the outside, but it's still raw on the inside. Inside's not done. Yeah, exactly. So what do you do? It's slower. Slow, man. Yeah. <laughs> cook it. Cook it. I mean, the classic, there's a reason that, like, the classic method is, is to, 
you know, if you're grilling hot dogs or grilling bratwurst, is to is to have a little pan of beer. Yeah, exactly. It's simmered in there for a while, and yeah, and, and it's then not, brown it at the end. And, and it's funny because everybody thinks, oh, it's because you're infusing the sausage with beer. It's like, well, and you're keeping it from drying out. You that's, know, you're, you're gonna get some beer flavor for sure. But yeah, you'll get a little bit, but that's not, you know, that's not. You could do it in water, and it be, and it would work just as well because the whole idea is you want to cook it all the way through. Right. You know, you don't want it. The outside done, inside raw. Or... God, it's terrible. I've just seen so many sausages just ruined, you know, and, and it's sad because it's such a beautiful food stuff, the sausage. And, and yeah, I think people take it for granted sometimes. I do too, you know, <laughs> like it, you get used to like the Johnsonville brat level of quality and people don't really think about it. And But if you take a little time and you take a nice pork shoulder and you, and you, you season it how you like it. Because, I mean, the thing, the other thing I like about sausage is like you can – so many flavors. Anything. Oh, you know? You... I, I just love some Dijon and garlic, you know? Oh, ooh, Dijon, really? I've yeah. never tried mustard in the sausage. Yeah. Oh, it's man. A little bit, you know? That sounds good. Like like the, the mustard mustard uh, in the prepared yeah. already? Yeah, or, like a or... nice Dijon. Like I use that, the, the Tour brand. I don't know. comes in a can. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's strong, you know, so you don't need much. Nice. Actually in it. That's good. Yeah, I, I like, I mean, garlic's classic. Last winter, I got really into like Chinese cooking. Nice. And uh, I started messing around with uh, ginger and Szechuan peppercorns. Szechuan peppercorns in a sausage are nice. pretty awesome. Because then you I've know, used those on a steak before. You have know, you really? A, yeah. Oh, not yeah. wow! I bet they'd work really well. It's nice, you know, a little salt and pepper. We, we mix them in with the black pepper. Uh-huh. You know, but, uh huh. And you get that little that like beefy flavor, and then some tingly tingly. Yeah, a nice little. Sh- oh man, we were doing it at the homestead there. Nice. Another thing that that I like to do with with my ground my ground pork that unfortunately we're not super um, necessarily aware of in the States in, uh, in, in France, in all the charcuteries, there'll be like a huge display of terrines and a terrine is basically like a cold meatloaf. I mean, you can make them hot if you want to. And all it is really is a sausage. Although the classic ones, they use even more fat, like, like a, a regular sausage will be like 25 to 30% fat. And a lot of terrine recipes, it'll be like 40% fat. And these things are like ridiculous. But you cook Almost them. spreadable. Like. Yeah, some of them are. Like, because the, the great thing about them is like you, you can get a lot of different textures out of them. Like some of them are a lot closer to an American meatloaf. You know, and it's funny because right. like people get weirded out by them. They're like, oh, terrine, that sounds really fancy. And they look kind of weird sometimes. Yeah, they, they look know? sort of weird. They tend to like. You know, most of the time, like a lot of time they'll put like nuts in them and stuff. And so they'll be like speckled, chunks. you know, or they'll, they'll put like big chunks of fat and they'll yeah. be like wrinkled, you know, throughout the slice, you know, almost like a fruitcake, except meaty. <laughs> a meat cake, a beef cake. Well, a pork cake, I guess, was, would be what it is. And um, <laughs> but but they really are. They, the difference between them and a meatloaf is that they're cooked at a lot lower temperature. You know, you'll the. Terrine itself is actually, they're named for the container that they're cooked in, you know, which is usually like, it's like a loaf pan. They typically, they're either cast iron or they're enamel. The cast iron ones are super expensive, which is why I only have the enamel ones, but you can actually use just a regular loaf pan. And, uh, and traditionally to get the texture, you want the same kind of thing as like the sausage where you, you don't want to cook it super hot because you don't want all the fat and all the juices to leak out of it. So they poach them. Traditionally, the old school way of doing it is to poach it in a water bath, like nice. almost like making a custard, you know? Yeah. Now, like creme brulee or something. Yeah, except you know, again, meaty. <laughs> <laughs> now a lot of a lot of people now make them in sous vide, which the biggest reason that I wanted to have you on here is because we're going to have a big long talk about sous vide. Nice. For for what uh, for those of you that aren't aware of what it is. It means sous vide in French because it was originally developed in France. Well, it was originally a meat, like a big industrial meat processor thing. Right. And then there were these uh, these brothers, the Trois Gros brothers at this. Uh, they had a three Michelin star restaurant in France. And they were making terrines. And they were specifically making foie gras terrines. And they were making them the old way, but they were still not happy with the amount of fat they were losing. So... They went to their friends who had their, like, an industrial meat processing factory, and they started messing around with this sous vide. And what it, what it is, sous vide in French means under vacuum. And so what they do, what you do is you, you seal your, uh, whatever your food product is, in a plastic bag, 
And then you have a thing called an immersion circulator that precisely regulates the temperature of a bath of water. And you put your food in there and you leave it in there until it reaches the temperature of the water. And John and I went to Station 12 to make some carnitas, which are a Mexican delicacy that are traditionally cooked in a huge pot of low temperature fat and then deep fried. But we cooked them in a sous vide rig and we'd like to tell you about it now. quiet little sound is the sound of an immersion circulator, which is pretty much the one essential component to a sous vide setup. You can get a, you can get by without a vacuum sealer because you can use freezer ziplocks. Yeah, just dunk them in. The water displacement method? Yeah. There's a name for that. I can't think of it right now. Is there another name other than water displacement? Yeah, it's, a, it's the same principle as like when you sit down in the bathtub and the water rises. Archimedes. That's it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> These are carnitas, Mexican, Spanish for little meats. Tiny meats, looking good. Can't smell it because it's all back sealed in there. This is the one drawback of sous vide actually, is that you know these things have been cooking for two days and if you had like regular meat cooking for two days, it would just like, the whole house would just smell of like pork shoulder. Well, that's one of the points that when I took the CV course from Bruno, he'd be like, when you cook in your apartment, the smell, it's all in your apartment. Yeah. The CV, it's all trapped in the, in the bag. Right. When you crack that thing up, and I guarantee you this whole place is gonna <laughs> smell wonderful. These, this is pork shoulder, and I've cubed it up into like, probably, they're kind of irregular chunks. It doesn't matter, like, you know, maybe two inches by two inches-ish. And I have soaked some chilies and I mashed those chilies up in a mortar and pestle with a little bit of toasted cumin and some coriander and some black pepper, a couple other things. I think I used a couple of anchos and a couple of the little red ones whose name I can't remember. Um, you know the little skinny red ones? Or they grow? I think they start with a G. Wahios? Yes! Yes, yeah. that is the one. Yeah, I usually use just a couple because they're hotter. Yeah. Like I like- I would imagine. I like the, the, the anchos for that, that raisiny kind of sweet flavor. And yeah. then the, the, what was it? Guajillo. Guajillo. Those for, they're, they're a little hotter. So these guys have been sitting in this sous vide bath at 152 degrees for 24 hours. Nice. I'm about ready to pull this. And I'm picking it up, I'm pulling it out of the water, and you can see, like, I got this nice food saver bag. Vac sealed. It's all vac sealed. And now I got this nice big clump of meat, and there is some juice in it. And what I'm going to do with that juice when I take it out is I'm going to reduce it. Nice. Because it's, that. it's... A, it's, A, it's, it's insanely flavorful, but B, when you take it out and you cool it down, it's basically going to be jelly. You know, like it's super, super high intense stock is essentially what you're getting. But the thing is like, there's not a lot of it really. If, if I had done this, you know, in a Dutch oven or something and cooked it for three hours at, you know, 300 degrees, like there'd be way more juice exuded. Yeah. One thing they taught us in the class, I don't see anywhere else the information. I took a course uh, to, to let it rest in the bag actually for five minutes, then five minutes in cold water, and then ice it. Huh. And it, you'll have a chance to absorb some of that juice back, you know, right. some of that flavor. Maybe this is, you know, if you were grilling or something, you know. So leave it in the bag. Five minutes. Right on. So there we are, just pulling our carnitas out of the, the, the pot of 152 degree water after they've been sitting in there for 24 hours. And John, you are, you probably have more sous vide experience than I would guess just about anybody in Homer. So can you walk us through a little bit about how you would uh, determine like for a long cooking thing, like a pork shoulder, like what temperature and how long you'd want to cook it for? Well, yeah, it basically just depends on, you know, what you're looking for at the end. Uh, 
You, you did what, a 153 on that, you said? A 152 for 24 hours. Yeah, and it was still kind of nice and firm, you know, not too soft, you know, because we were going to fry it later. Right. I still held, you know, a lot of juice, you know. Uh, the higher, the longer you go, the drier it's going to be at the end. Right. You know, and depending on, you know, uh, how long you have to actually cook it, you know. You can go higher for a shorter amount of time, and you still get you get pasteurized, and you'll still have a, a nice texture. But, uh, you know, the longer you go with the higher temperature... Uh, the dryer's going to be. It all just kind of depends on what you're looking for. So what's the what, what's the what's the longest you've ever taken anything? Actually, how long do you do your pork belly? Because pork belly and pork shoulder are fairly similar, except belly's a little more gelatinous and a fatty. More fatty, yeah. Uh, I, I like to do them for 48 hours. Uh-huh. We've done them for 12, 36, and 48. And uh-huh. it's, there's just something magic at like 48. Like it's 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 almost jelly, but it's still firm enough to hold together that you can sear it and get a nice crispy outside. Right, and be warm and just. Basically so, melt in your mouth. So you know? at like at twelve hours, a piece of pork belly might be like a like bacon, you know that yeah, kind of still texture. Has, it's still meaty, and you can kind of pull it apart with a fork, but it holds together right. a lot more, you know. And then at twenty four hours, it would be softer, more like a pulled pork texture, right. maybe. Yeah. And then at, at forty eight, it's just like it's almost like jelly that you, you know. Uh, it's barely got some structure. Pulls together, yeah, yeah. It's pretty nice. You just have to be really careful when you and and the amazing thing to me, like. You know, when I first started um, hearing about sous vide, I was like, well, how is that any different from, like, braising something? Well, yeah. You know, you, you look at it, and, uh, and, and you're like, well, you know, what's the big deal between this, suppose, this low, low temp for 48 hours versus, you know, 300 degrees for four, four hours, like I've always been doing? But it's, it's a totally different product. Right. Uh, yeah, you could get different, you know... You can lower your temperature as opposed to, you know, when you're braising, you're doing kind of like for a long time, you can, you know, keep that low temperature, but still hold a integrity of like if you're doing a steak or something like that, you right. know, like a cheaper cut of steak. Right. You might do, and you can get it done in like five to eight hours, you know, yeah. in the sous vide. And also, you know, you can really impart whatever flavors you kind of want to put in there. Anything right. you want to put the in bag. the bag. Yeah. It's going to be were, really strong. Yeah. You were saying that like, uh, you actually want to be a little careful, um, uh, as far as like, like don't season as heavy as you, as you would. Well, definitely when it comes to the herbs and stuff like that, uh, what they taught us was it was 10 grams of salt per kilo of meat, one gram of pepper per kilo. So you could weigh your meat in kilos, just move the decimal over. You know, exactly. 10 grams yeah. of, or 10 kilos. One more, one more plug for the metric system in cooking, man. It, oh, man, it just <laughs> well, saves you. When you look at a lot of so recipes, much. a lot of them, you know, especially, you know, older stuff, you're going to see Celsius, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the temperature on the pork belly actually we do is like 63 Celsius. I think that's... Probably 145, something like that. I think it is. Yeah, it is something like that because that is almost exactly the temperature that I've used when I've sous vide eggs. Right. But eggs, yeah, while we're talking about sous vide, because I mean, if you want to poach an egg, to be specific, 62.8 for 45 minutes is what I always did to get, like, if you're doing, especially, it's nice for brunch if you have a bunch of people over because instead you don't have to fool around trying to do the circus of getting a bunch of eggs into the boiling water and stuff. You can just throw them all in there and let them sit and pull them out to make your Benedict. And then you get that amazing texture on the yolk. It's just I know, it's like incre- something I've never seen. It's like know? pudding, you know? You can actually separate it and hold that yolk. And I've bred it and fried them before, you know? Oh, ooh. <laughs> they have a lot of applications for that, but it's just kind of a cool little thing, you know, a little toast point or something. And Okay, we're, we're going to stop the show. We're going to go do that right now. <laughs> I did miss uh, if you're going to use herbs in a sous vide, you want to use like a quarter of what you would normally use. Right, because they're way because they're Cause way more intense. So strong. Yeah. Now the one thing that I I, I think I should mention, um, if you are going to try it, if and you want to use something liquidy, you don't want to use uh, a vac sealer unless you have a chamber vac. You know, which is which are the big huge ones that you put the you put your your vac sealed. Uh, food into and it sucks all the air out at once if you just have a regular food saver you know the the kind with the clamp you can't really do liquid in there so if you want to do liquid you need to get a freezer safe ziploc type bag and we mentioned it a little bit the water displacement method right so what you would do is is you you've got your pot of water going and you you close your ziploc all except for like the top little corner and you put it in the water and you gently submerge it and squeeze the air out that one little corner. Right, that submerge it right down to the zip line. Yep, go all the way down and and remember it's got to be a freezer a freezer safe bag. Those are the only ones that are rated for the temperatures that you'll be working at even though they're sous vide. I don't think I've ever I I think the only thing I've ever done past like 160 in a sous vide is I did octopus. Nice. 
And that was the only thing that I've and I did that at like 180. Actually, the, I did. I did creme brulee at 180. Creme brulee at 180. I actually do remember now there was some like super fancy technique for making potatoes where you could you could make you could cook potatoes in the sous vide and then you could cook them afterwards and then you could make mashed potatoes in a food processor and that was at like 180 or something like that. But that was way more trouble than it was worth. The vegetables are really high. Yeah, 85 Celsius. Yeah, and. And the, the, the price on the, the sous vide rigs have come down a lot. Like the ones that you guys have at the restaurant, obviously they're bigger and they're, they're those were like kind of some of the original ones too. And they were, I mean, nowadays we use poly science brand. Yeah. Those are like 800 bucks each, but yeah, still, yeah, still, but they, they also, they, they run a lot more water, you know, that through their water bath. And, but and I think used that, every day. Yeah. Know? They get used all the time, but the new ones, like. Now they're down to like a hundred bucks. Oh, the home ones like the Anivis? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the one that I got, I've had mine for like five or six years now. And I think I paid like 200 for it, which was, now yeah. that's like. Now it's like the most expensive part of it is a, a vac sealer if you want it. You yeah. Know? And you don't even really need it. really work really well. Especially. You know, and, and they're really, you know, especially for, for tough cuts, you know, like you guys at AJ's, you know, you use them for some of your, uh, some of your steaks and some of your volume, like fish and things like that. And it's great for that. But. You know, at home, like the thing that that the thing that really sold me was the short ribs. Nice, you seventy-two know? hours. Seventy-two hour short ribs at like one hundred and thirty-two. You're like, never gonna get a texture like that. Yeah, else. it's impossible to achieve anywhere else. You get essentially what you get is something with the texture of like the greatest cooked pot roast that you've ever had, <laughs> except it's medium rare. Yeah, you know, and it has that like full beefy, like unbelievable flavor, and and the and it's just like. It, it's hard to describe. Well, you use a 130, 135? Something yeah, like that. something like that for, you know, 72 hours with short ribs. I bet you could do that with, like, pork shanks, too. You know, it's that time of year where people are starting to get, um, you know, local pigs. Yeah. And, I mean, this is it's, – it's a great way to use all the stuff that you're kind of scratching your head going, well, I guess I could just – I guess I could just grind it. I mean, I would love to – None of my hunter friends ever seem to give me like moose shanks for me to uh, <laughs> for me to throw in the sous vide rig, but I would love some. <laughs> we have had our carnitas at 152 degrees in the sous vide rig for 24 hours. We've just pulled them out, and now we're going to head back to station 12 to fry them up. <laughs> You know, like, I mean, you can do them in a pan, it's not that big a deal. Alright, but why not, you know? Crispy on the outside, juicy on the inside. So, pan too much. and it's a good idea to pat your carnitas dry. <laughs> you don't want that splatter. Yeah, it's the actually... More water, the more splatter you're gonna have. Yeah, the well, the less browning, yeah, which is a big deal, you know, like, I mean... If you want brown on something, you should pat it down. Absolutely. 100% of the time. And really no color, no flavor. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm going to lower my carnitas. Oh, yeah. So... Because these just came out of the sous vide, really, as long as, as soon as they're crispy on the outside, they're done. And honestly, like, even if I had kept them in the refrigerator overnight, they still pretty much, they're small enough that, like, once they're crispy, they're done. Still warm in the middle. So I am pulling these guys out. And they, frankly, they look pretty awesome. They're crispy. That looks amazing. Brown on the outside. So traditionally, real like old school Mexican carnitas. So they take a pot of lard, right. and they fill and they they put their their carnitas into the pot of lard at a really like not even a simmer like. And that's the reason you use the lard is it's easier it's to maintain. Yeah, it's easier to maintain a low temperature. It's actually it's a little bit like 
sous vide almost, you know, it's like kind of the same idea as like a really low temperature poaching, but it's still, it happens at hotter temperatures. So it only takes like maybe four hours, six hours. Sometimes it depends. You wind up with a texture. It's di it's a different texture from pulled pork. You know, pulled pork is like, it, it falls apart almost. Super moist. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah. this though, it, it's got a lot more structural integrity and you can see, bite. you can see like when you, when you, when you start pulling it apart to make tacos, it's it's easy to pull apart, but it's not stringy yeah. like like pulled pork. It's still like it kind of stays in one piece. They're little. They're they're surrounded by crispy shells, and then crispy there's on like the outside moist in the middle. You know, and there's little chunks of like really delicious like soft fat, but so good. So now we gotta take this. We gotta take these carnitas, these little meats, and we gotta make some tacos. Nice. And we did make some tacos. Those were delicious. And they were delicious. The other reason I wanted to have you here, not just for your sous vide expertise, but also you used to work in a barbecue restaurant in Tennessee? Tennessee, yeah, Chattanooga. Chattanooga. People from Texas, like, they all try to move in on the barbecue thing, and they try to make barbecue all about brisket and beef well, now, you know? That's what they got, you know? Down south, it's, it's all about the pork. Yep, in the south, it is 100% pork, and ribs are, depending on where you are, ribs are important, but, I mean, pretty much anywhere you go in the south, you're going to find yourself eating pork shoulder. So you were saying you guys actually use the whole... We use the whole shoulder arm. You know, when you, when you get the pork shoulder, you got what they call the shoulder butt. Right. Which and is that, actually not the butt of the pig, which I thought when I was a kid, not that it was hilarious. <laughs> it's just the butt end of the arm, you right. know, the entire arm. You know, then there's the shank part. You right. know, we use the entire the entire shoulder arm. Everything from... So, you, so basically what we get... Because usually, like, you go to the store here, and if you buy a pork shoulder butt... You're getting it's basically like half of the shoulder because there's right. a top and there's a bottom. Right, and there's the top, a big shank part. Yeah, yeah. There's the top and the top. I think usually is if they call it the Boston butt, then that's usually the top. Gotcha. And then if it's the picnic shoulder, that's usually the bottom. Yeah, and the picnic shoulder will have that one that blade bone that kind of sticks out on the edge. Right. Yeah, and then it, but but you guys actually went all the way. Did you get? Everything down to the trotter, or just uh, right down to the to the to just to above the, it, just basically. above it, yeah, just right on, you know, normal shank. And you, so so, what kind of smoker did you have there? We had big rotisserie, old Hickory brand smokers. You know, I don't think you'd see them up here. It's a, definitely a southern thing. Yeah, but uh, you know, they were huge. You know, we could do up to six hundred pounds in one in a night. Oh my god! We had four between. You had four smokers. Yeah, between. Uh, the, our main restaurant, and then we had a catering also that was very busy. So were they on racks or were they actually on rotisseries? They were on, on it was a rotisserie with a, they had six in each swinger arms. Uh-huh. That you could put the pork shoulders or you could put two layers of pork shoulders or you could do three layers of ribs or right. three layers, we did wings. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, so, yeah, basically a big rotisserie, swinger arms. And so you put them in at night and then they'd go? Yeah, we'd have to have them in by... Five, five or so in the afternoon, so, uh -huh. so they would go for 12 hours, probably around 225 degrees. 225? Yeah, for about 12 hours. We had guys that come in about 5, 5.30 in the morning to deal with all that uh, beautiful pork. And were they, so, so they were, were they, they were totally wood fired or did they have uh, No, they were gas fired. They were gas fired? They were gas fired. One big gas burning flame and we would just take one big piece of hickory and put it in the chamber where the, the, the fire would hit it and uh -huh. that was it, you know. Yeah, so 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 the smoke was just there for flavor, and and the actual temperature was because gas is a lot easier to regulate, right? You yeah, know, heat temperature wise. controlled, and yeah, and just storage of all that wood somewhere in a restaurant, you know. What did you do to What did you do to prepare it? Did you salt the? Just salt. You, you just salted it before Straight you threw it salt. on. Yep. You know that's funny because like people are always like, oh yeah, I got this great barbecue rub and blah blah and this and you know it's all complicated and right. all this and I've honestly I've gotten to the point where. I'm pretty much the same way. Like if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to make, if I'm going to try to make some pulled pork on my Weber, I just salt it. Yeah. Well, that just kept it basic too. So, because afterwards, you know, we might have whatever kind of sauce, right. you know, they were going to order it with. Right. You know. And what kind of sauces did you, did you use with it? Because um, I know the classic, the classic. Plain, just kind of tomato based, you know, kind of uh, just, you know tomato brown sugar kind of sauce right. and then we would sweeten that with honey for a honey sauce or we'd add whiskey yeah. uh, for a whiskey sauce yeah uh, we did have a mustard sauce which wasn't as popular but oh yeah because it's in of, tennessee and yeah. mustard mustard's like a carolina thing yeah. but it's actually my favorite and my, then, it's the only one that my wife will eat like 
It is, and, and it's really just a little bit of mustard and then a huge amount of vinegar. Ah. You know, a lot, a That's lot of... the traditional way, yeah. Yeah, a lot of rice vinegar. Yeah. Well, they, I think they probably traditionally just use white vinegar. But I don't really like white vinegar. <laughs> we actually talked about this a little bit because we, when, when, when we were eating the tacos, which it's too bad you guys don't get to enjoy those tacos. But when we were eating the tacos, I had made a quick pickle with some cabbage. And uh, next week we're talking about cabbage, so we'll go into a little more about pickling uh, next week with Terry Robel. But, uh, but I had quick pickled some cabbage, and we were talking about um, – I use rice vinegar with a little sugar and a little salt, but you were saying you actually have a shortcut now that you just use sushi dressing? We did, yeah. yeah. Nice. It's already got the salt sugar in there. Add right. some uh, pepper flakes sometimes. or Man, I, now, I wanna, now I wonder if sushi dressing would work on pulled pork. Possibly, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, there is a, areas of Tennessee where their style of sauce is really vinegary. It's almost like a... Almost like a ketchup vinaigrette, almost you know, with some oh yeah, some garlic and stuff added, but definitely you know, very loose and runny. Yeah, and they leave their barbecue really chunky. Right, know, and it kind of gets so they can get down in there. So with all this, with all this extensive uh, barbecue joint experience, how has that how has that changed the way that you make pulled pork at home or even in the restaurant when you don't have a smoker? Like, what do you do? Just do you, do you just do it in the oven and call it good? Yeah, or? you know, uh, you can always wrap it. Uh, Film and foil uh-huh. in, a, in a pan with some kind of something to hold it up, you know, hopefully you got a, a a screen to put down the bottom or something like that. Right. And, uh, basically, you know, braise it. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, it's not a super sin to put some liquid smoke in there if you don't have access to it. Yeah. You just want, you do want to be careful because that stuff is really powerful. And you want to buy a good, buy a good one. Right. Yeah. That's There's true. There's definitely a difference in, in the brands. You yeah. Know? And some of them are real like watery and harsh. And they have a lot of additives, other sugars and right. stuff like that. Well, that, that you, they, you know, like people, people get all snotty about liquid smoke. They're like, oh, I don't like to use chemicals. But really the way that they make it is they actually like fill a chamber with smoke yeah. and they put a pot it. of water in it. Yeah. And, and the, and, and the, the water just collects the smoke. And so literally all the only ingredients in a good liquid smoke is smoke and water. Yeah. That's all you're looking for. You know, you know if there's like corn, some of them have like corn syrup or right. like, you know, weird, you know, it's like, why are you? Yeah. And it burns on there. You right. Know, if you try to, I don't know, grill it up afterwards or something. Yeah. I remember the, the, the it seems like the, the, the bad stuff is like both waterier and kind of sticky. Yeah. You know? And darker in color. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a lot more harsh and pungent. So, officially, you are allowed to use a little liquid smoke. I think so. Especially you know, at home. Yeah, uh, especially. I mean, who's gonna know. who's gonna go outside and smoke a bunch of pulled pork in the middle of January? It's a lot easier to tend it in your home. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, all this rich meat needs something to settle it down. So I asked Skip Clary to choose something to pour with pork shoulder. And he brought the 2014 Pinacoli Primitivo di Mandaria to Station 12 to taste with Seth Stickrod. Here they are talking about this wine and why Skip chose it. I could just do this. I don't yeah. really need to taste it. Yeah. Mm. And it's got something in it. The vapors go right to your head. Yep. That's pretty. Oh. Huh. It's different than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. It's brighter and, and much more brighter. tannic much than brighter you would and More tannic than I thought it was going to be. I get a lot of, uh, there's a little bit of blackberry in there. Mm-hmm. There's definitely. Just a hint of maybe like a little leather touch, but way yep. in the back. It's definitely a wine made for food. Um, yeah. With that, with that yeah. degree of tannin, you you would expect that. And for the listeners at home, tannin. If you're unfamiliar with the idea of what tannins do, you don't really taste them. You feel them. They cause a sensation, much like acidity or just the generic sweetness. When a wine, if you wash it between your your gums and your upper and lower lips, tannins will cause a drying effect, which causes your gums and your the inside of your lips to stick together. So when you get a wine that is is so drying like that that you have to go to kind of get your power of speech back, that's tannin that's doing that. I love it. It's, it's interesting. The fruit comes 
at the end. It really does. The tannin, this, this is a wine that will need to open up. Some more science here. Tannins, if you look at them under a serious microscope, they have a size and a shape that is different depending on which grape you're looking at. So for example, Cabernet has got really big angular tannins and you can really feel it. They feel a little rough, a little sandy maybe. They will eventually soften up, but if you get a young, big, beefy Napa Cabernet, one of the reasons some of these wines, they say, look, don't drink it yet, it's not ready, is those tannins have not had time to form longer molecular chains and fall out of solution, which is why you get sediment in older bottles. That's exactly what that is. Whereas if you look at a Merlot, still has tannins, but the particles are much smaller and they're, they're rounder. They have, some people refer to them as polished or soft tannins. That's why the texture of them is actually physically different. Now, why would you want tannin in a wine? Well, it, one, it gives it structure. Two, that structure gives it ageability, right? My first thought on this was it would go great with a big, greasy, fat cheeseburger. You better believe it. This is, this is a wine that I recommend to people when they're like, look, I'm going to a barbecue. All I know is they're throwing a bunch of critter on a real hot grill, and that's what I'm having tonight. I don't know mm -hmm. what it is. I'm like, get this. There's enough acidity to it that uh, it will work with fattier cuts of meat. Mm -hmm. And since this is the wine to pair with um, pork shoulder, with pork shoulder, you can go in a number of directions as far as like, you know, dry spice rub, what kind of sauce are you going to use, how much smoke are you going to apply. This wine will, I think, in more circumstances than most, work with a lot of different treatments sure. of, of that. I can see that. The berries are really starting to come through finally. Yes. The tannins yeah. are just relaxing enough to let that fruit show through. Wasn't expecting So what we've Italian. got here is an Italian wine grown in Manduria, and the grape is Primitivo. And more Americans have had Primitivo than you can possibly imagine because it is the same grape as Zinfandel. Yeah. But this doesn't drink like a California Zinfandel. Not at all. Totally different character. It, oh, I take this over It that doesn't, anyway. oh, yeah. This does not have that, okay, it's 14% alcohol, but the alcohol is totally integrated here. But it's more about, Bright red berry fruit, Absolutely. good tannic structure. There's room for smoke. There's room for sweetness. There's Absolutely. room for fat. There's room for spice. Absolutely. And it again, is. that's a nice way to put it. There's a lot of room to. That's it. It 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 works like a sauce. Yeah. I might have to just pour a little bit oh, more in there because I'm losing. The so you should of, losing the nose there. It's you need a little bit more buddy. to swirl. I know. Oh, doesn't that look nice? Yeah. It's pretty. I'm glad we actually had decent. Uh, like Riedel wine glasses for this because to try this in a glass that is shaped wrong, this is one of those wines that will not show its best unless it's in a decent glass. Yeah, I think this would lose something in a mason jar at my uh, It kind of would. <laughs> it kind of would. Although I got to say on, on the beach at a, at a impromptu barbecue, I'd, I'd have this out of a mason jar. For folks that can't see the label, this is called Pinacoli. Uh, it's a Primitivo from Manduria in Italy. And now we're getting into it, like a whole terroir thing where it comes oh, with, it's, yeah. this must be a Northeastern Italian wine then. Uh, Manduria is actually further south, but it's higher oh. altitude. Oh, okay. And that's, that's what happens. It's the, the, the sunlight, um, that they get there is, is pretty brutal during the day and it causes mm -hmm. those grapes to form thicker skins, which gives you much more tannin. The big tannin thing, yeah. But it cools down at night. Whereas in California, yeah, you've got the hot weather and it, you, get, you get the tannins, but you also build up huge amounts of sugar and you get no acid retention. And that results in those, those flabby, non-structured 15.5% alcohol Zinfandels. That, flabby 15%. And they don't go with any, they're food, they're food hostile. They're not just not food friendly. <laughs> they actually want to beat up whatever's on the plate. And it's pointless. I don't get it. I just don't get it. And it's not that 
high alcohol by itself is a problem. It's just that it's not integrated with the rest of it. Whereas this, we're Americans. We're trying to get this. drunk, Skip. Yeah. That's what well, we there is about. that. There is that. <laughs> it's an intoxicating little number, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I do love this one, though. This is great. I, I, I think it's a dynamite wine. You know, one of the reasons that I like to to have these segments in in there is because you know, like, I don't want. I don't want people to think like, oh, you have to drink with all this stuff. But set, but uh, uh, Skip, is, he makes this this point this over and over and over and over again that wine and and beverages, whatever you're drinking with them, is is kind of a sauce that's supposed to go with the meat. And I I actually think this makes sense because you know pulled pork is is such a classic Southern dish. Which you know you're from the South, I'm from the South. Yeah. What's the national beverage of the South? A sweet tea. Right? Yeah, <laughs> and it, and it actually is one of those things with where uh, tea has a ton of tannins in it, which also red wine is noted for having a lot of tannins, and that is something that it helps to to counteract like the richness and the fattiness and like all this like yeah. overwhelming smoke flavor. Yeah, the sweetness of the tea and the tannins, and yeah, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I mean, you can't go to a barbecue place down south and not. See sweet tea, at least. Yeah. I mean, you can't even, in a lot of places, in the really old school places, you can't even get unsweetened tea. And <laughs> so, people yeah. get people get mad about it. They're like, oh, well, why can't, you know, can't you just leave the sugar out? And the answer is no, because if you're actually, if you want to make proper southern sweet tea, you Got have, to, it's got to, you have to add the sugar when it's hot, because what it does, what it does is, is it allows the tea to accept more sugar right. than it otherwise would. And, you know, you just can't get that, like tooth shakingly you know <laughs> eat it with a spoon instant instant <laughs> diabetes from from cold water in your tea so so there's a reason you know it's not just booze that that goes well with these th- and even coca-cola there's there's a lot of acid in coca-cola yeah you know and that goes with all this lovely fat smoky southern food as well some people actually cook pork shoulder or ham with Coca-Cola on it. You know, I've done that, too. I actually did it with Dr. Pepper once, too, because nice. it was – and I got to say, I did it – actually, I didn't cook it with it on it. I brined it in there because, nice. you know, most brines have a lot of sugar and a lot of uh, of acid as well. It just started to break down and tenderize it. Yeah, that's kind of the flavor. theory. And I honestly – I did it, and I, I got to say, I'm not sure it was worth the three bottles of sure. – coke or you know three three liter bottles of coke or whatever like i think there was a little bit more sweetness and i think it might have browned up a little better when i cooked it so it's not it's not something that i necessarily found to be better than just a straight but honestly i don't brine my meat that much even when i'm dry dry curing i don't tend to brine as much as i do salt yeah i don't brine as much pork as i would like a chicken or a turkey or something like that yeah uh, but yeah, a lot of people use uh, different sodas in their barbecue sauce recipes. I've seen, you know, I've seen root beer and Dr Pepper. Oh yeah, you know. Anyway, well, that, you know, that makes sense because, like, you know, sodas, they're not just sweet. There's a ton of it. There's, there's a lot other of flavors going on. There's a lot of acid and there's a lot of other flavors. So, I mean, it totally makes sense. And and if you're into that, I I know also I don't really have it laying around. Plus, I tend to I tend to just do um, straight salt. And actually, I I want to mention this. Just because I love it so much, um, is is white ham, nice, aka city ham, aka if you're feeling French, <laughs> jambon de Paris, Parisian ham, <laughs> and all it is is it's it's uh, it can either be leg of pork or in a lot of cases they'll use pork shoulder, um, and you just bone it out, and you salt it, you dry cure it in salt for. Uh, about three to four percent salt because when you're when you're when you're curing you use a lot higher percentage of salt than uh, you know with fresh sausage might be one and a half to two percent and uh, a dry cured sausage or ham might be three to four percent so you take your pork shoulder you bone it out put three to four percent salt on top of it and then you will have to look up the recommended safe uh, levels for your cure number one pink salt because I don't have them uh, instantly accessible in my brain but you use it and it's not very much like a tea, like a teaspoon um of pink salt which is sodium nitrite okay and you let that sit i honestly i might put a little black pepper on it i might put a little um cinnamon sometimes cloves something like that you don't have to 
and I let that sit for a couple of weeks in the refrigerator, and then I take it out, and you poach it in either simmering water, or I like to do sous vide, like 155 for a day or so, and it comes out, and it's this beautiful, uncured, fully cooked ham. It's not, I mean, it is cured. It's unsmoked. Right. And it and it's just an awesome, like, for whenever you're looking for, like, a ham flavor, but not, like, a real intense, like, smokiness, like, is a great in an omelet. It makes terrific sandwiches. Um, anywhere that you would use ham. I had one of the greatest dishes that I've ever had was at uh, uh, this Montreal restaurant called Le Vin Papillon. And they did something with this Jambon Blanc ham with, and all, the whole dish was some, some slices of this cooked with some brown butter and some a ton of black pepper and some uh, Pecorino Romano. And that was the whole dish. And it was like one of the most outrageously delicious things that I've ever eaten. So there's no sugar in there? You're just doing salt? and No, you don't. You, you could. You know, there, there's nothing stopping you from putting a little sugar in that because uh, sweetness goes, goes pretty well with ham. But in this particular one, especially because you're not smoking it, like there, there aren't a lot of like real aggressive flavors that you need the sugar to tame. Right. You know, like I feel like, you know, with especially with like smoked meat. If you don't, if you don't have a little sweetness somewhere, it gets overwhelming, you know. Yeah, and like, like pork and beans, you know, like, like Boston baked beans kind of deal. Oh, it always has like molasses, ton of sugar. Yeah, a lot ton of sugar, it. molasses. But it, but it's also got a ton of acid, and it's also got a ton of fat from the, you know, usually usually multiple different kinds of pork. Yeah, a lot of the simple recipes, they get, you know, they got ketchup in there. Yeah, and there's uh, your vinegar and more more sugar, probably corn syrup if you're using the yeah. standard ketchup. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the the real traditional the the recipes from New England anyway, they they all call for molasses. But I right. I actually started making them like they make them in Quebec. They call it fevolard, beans with bacon, basically, or beans with lard. They use maple syrup. Nice. But, you know, maple syrup is kind of pricey here, so I can only... Uh, yeah, you got to get the real deal. Yeah, well, yeah, you can't, use the, you can't use the fake stuff, but I can only, you can only afford to make it if you've been to Quebec recently, <laughs> where you can get, you know, a quart of maple syrup for like six bucks. And that's $6 Canadian, so it's like 50 cents here. <laughs> well, I believe we have come to the end of this particular episode of Check the Pantry. I would like to thank my guest, John Brown, from AJ's Steakhouse for enlightening us on all aspects of sous vide and properly made southern barbecue this is check the pantry i am your host jeff lockwood we will be back next week where we will be talking about cabbage Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's hosted by Jeff Lockwood and was engineered today by Kathleen Gustafson. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebain. The cooking and tasting segments were recorded at Station 12, located at 3751 Sterling Highway on top of Baycrest Hill in Homer. For information about Station 12, Call 907-235-4226 or email info at station12.com. This is the second episode of the first season of Check the Pantry. Check the Pantry.